All right. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to JFS In Conversation. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Gordon here to talk about, uh, wonderfully, the issue of youth children. Uh, and so the ages 10 to 14 or younger having unlimited access to the internet. So Dr. Gordon, how are you? I'm doing wonderful. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you. And I guess before we start, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. I'm Dr. Lana Gordon. I'm the Chief of Adolescent Medicine over at Nemours Children's Hospital in Orlando. And I um, basically, you know, just being an adolescent medicine specialist means that I take care of young people between the ages of 10 to 25. And to me, that's a really fascinating age because we know that outside of the first year of life, there's no greater time period of development than during adolescence. And so it's a great foundation for not just the rest of your life, but the rest of your health as well. And so for me, that's what just invigorates me about that particular age of um, young people um, and why I chose to specialize in that area of pediatrics. You're wonderful. So great to hear. Um, and I guess just to start, we'd like to ask, uh, what are your thoughts in general on young children? And so again, this is 10 to 14 or younger, having unlimited access to the internet. And of course, we know that the society we live in currently is very internet-based, very technology-based. And so I suppose with this in mind, with so many things being online, haha, <laughs> your thoughts? So, you know, it's funny. I think initially when, you know, technology started to kind of take a foothold in modern society, one of the first things that, you know, I think pediatricians said was, you know, no, this is bad. We're not going to, you know, embrace this limit screen time, keep it less than two hours, nothing under the age of two. And, you know, in the last like two to three years, we've actually had to put out several position statements and papers by we, I mean, the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, we've had to put out several position statements kind of thinking about what is safe internet use? How do we have conversations about the utilization of internet and media? Um, and how to best do this at each developmental stage? Because the reality is that technology is here to stay. Um, whether we like it or not, technology is going to be a ubiquitous part of our lives. And so, you know, do I think that young people should have unlimited access to the internet? No. Um, and young people should not have unlimited access to anything. Additionally, none of us, even as adults, should have unlimited access to the internet. And so, you know, definitely we don't want unlimited access for people whose brains are still developing. Mm, definitely, for sure. Um, are there any like main factors you think we should consider when thinking of this issue? Absolutely. So I think the first factor you've got to think about is what age of child you're talking about. Mm. So when we're thinking about our youngest children, um, so these would be the children under the under 18 months of age. Um, those children really should not be interacting with um, media um, at all. We know that there's a lot of um, tactile functioning and developmental processes that are happening at that age. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that interacting in a virtual world, when you're still learning how to explore your real world or the world that, you know, is surrounding us, um, you know, that that would be very confusing. And so we know that media exposure is actually quite confusing to children in that age range mm -hmm. because they're still learning the tangible world around them. And everything that's accessed through media is a virtual world. It's a, mim it's a mimic or a mock-up of the tangible world. And so, you know, there's a lot of confusion. Um, object permanency is very important at that age. And so being able to touch, feel, discover, put in your mouth, taste, um, learning how to, you know, kind of get an imprint of items using all five senses is really critical at that age. We do, however, recognize that there are situations where bonding um, is really important and virtual maintenance of bonding is that, you know, there are people who have to travel for work um, for, you know, a young child to never see their parent for 
a week when they don't have the concept of measuring time in a week could be quite traumatic to a child at that age. And so what's advised is that if children in that age need to interact with media for that reason, then we want to make sure that their interactions are happening in a way that is um, being guided by an adult who's present. So for instance, if you were to use FaceTime, you know, you would want another adult there at the same time to parallelly be like, you know, look, Susie, you know, that's, that's daddy, you know, um, you know, dada, dada, you know, or whatever. And kind of, so that there's that understanding of the same way that you do with other options, objects in their world, you know what I mean? You know, look, dada's on a phone screen, you know, kind of thing. So that, that way there's some interpretation of it. The same way that you point to, oh, look, there's a bird in the sky. There's a plane, like let's touch the grass. The same kinds of things you want to do that with the interactions with media. Mm-hmm. Now, between 18 to 24 months, there it has been some studies done that show that children can learn because, you know, one of the big arguments for people who are strong proponents of media is, well, wow, media kind of bridges a gap for people who, you know, maybe don't have as many tangible world experiences. So if you're a child who's living in a place where there's not green spaces, um, you know, maybe you wouldn't know about the concept of grass. I mean, that seems very simple, but maybe you wouldn't know about this particular concept without being able to see it virtually. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that what we've, what we've seen in studies is that only when people, again, have, des- have programs that are designed specifically to teach children, is that actually true that learning is taking place. Um, just unfortunately, the brain at that level and that age is not sophisticated enough to, again, take something that is a virtual mock-up of something that they've never seen and translate that to what it means in real life. That's a concrete operational skill that doesn't develop until a little later. And so as a result, um, these have to be really well-designed specific apps for teaching and learning for children at that age and still requires that adult tangible interaction. So it should be, you know, again, all of these apps were designed in the context of research studies. They're not available commercially. So nothing that's out there in any of our app stores um, meet the level of um, rigor um, or educational planning that would be required to teach a child at that age. But the AAP does say that between 18 to 24 months, um, it is okay to start introducing the concept of virtual items or media to a child. Now, when once you get to 24 months to two years old, kind of thinking about to five years old, so that early school-age child, that's the first point that there should be kind of real formalized introduction of media, internet use, apps, tablets, so forth. Um, we should be thinking about them being age-appropriate. And again, it should be in the context of um, with an adult. So there should still be parallel activities. So it's not here as an iPad. So mommy can go get some work done or daddy can go get some work done. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it's instead, you know, let's use the iPad together. Um, you know, let's use this counting game together. Let's lose this color, you know, this color task together. Let's play dress up together. You know, I mean, there's things that are used for pleasure and there's things that are used for learning, but we should really be um, using those two things together. Um, Once we get past five years old, that's when we can start to allow independent use of technology. Um, And really past, you know, six years of age and older, um, you know, unlike previous iterations of kind of the AAP's media use policy, we no longer have hard how many hours a day um, kind of guidelines. Instead, the AAP proposes this idea of what we call a personalized family media use plan. And the idea of this personalized family media use plan is that we're considering how media should work within the constraints of that child's life. 
So first of all, we want to think about time in terms of our technology time, in terms of what's technology that's used for recreation, and then what's technology that's being used for um, learning. Because there's the reality that depending on the school setup or other things, um, you know, there are young people who use media for six hours, eight hours a day, because it's a huge part of schooling. And that may be okay. Um, and then, but what we don't want is eight hours of maybe recreation time um, in exchange for other activities that are important for development. Mm -hmm. And so first of all, just thinking through kind of what's recreation time and then what's, um, and what's school time. Additionally, we wanna think about where are the screen-free zones um, in the household or in the family structure. So, you know, some recommendations are things like, you know, dinner time or the family dinner table should be a screen-free zone. Um, maybe bedrooms is another kind of place that we strongly recommend should be a fruit screen free zone. Um, some people might say maybe the car, you know, it just depends, you know, but what are the screen free zones? And then um, what are screen free times? So maybe homework at time is a screen free time. Um, family activities may be a screen free time. And then finally, what's like the device curfew? So what is the time when everybody's device should be off? And actually the idea is that, again, this is a family media plan. So that's not just the kids, that's all of us. So one of the funny things to me and one of the things that my patients love, um, you know, when we get to the office is, you know, I talk about sleep a lot with my patients. And one of the things that's a big factor of sleep is media use. And so, you know, you know, I'll kind of start, you know, talking about, okay, well, you know, what time do you turn off your, your screens? You know, we'll talk through screens and where, what screens are, blue light, how that all needs to be out of the bedroom. It needs to be off an hour before bedtime. And the parents are like, yes, yes, yes. And they're just smirking on the side because they're like, hmm, where have you heard that before? I was like, I know those parents, they know things. I hate it when that happens, you know, or whatever. And the teen is kind of looking like, oh, great, another adult. And then I'm like, okay, so, you know, but the thing about it is that's a rule for everybody. So everybody should have, you know, there should be a spot in the house where everybody puts their devices, puts mm -hmm. them in the bin. It's separate from everybody's bedrooms in the living room, family room, whatever. And you get them back in the morning. And then the teens like eyes light up and they're like, everybody, does that include the adults? And I'm like, it does. Now <laughs> the time may not be the same for the adults because obviously the adults have things they have to do sometimes after you go to bed. But, uh, <laughs> I was like, cause man, adulting stinks. But, uh, <laughs> But I was like, yes, there needs to be a time, you know, and so you should be able to in the morning when you come and get, are able to get your device, you should see that mom and dad's device was there as well. Um, and so I think that that's just one of those things that um, we need to remember that it's a family media use time. The biggest factor in how young people learn how to use media is really based on watching the adults around them. So we also have to be good with our media use. So I think it's really important to understand um, as a society and as maybe adults who are planning time for young people, mm -hmm. um, understanding the benefits and the liabilities of media um, and media utilization. So the benefits are, you know, you know, we live in a global world and so we need opportunities to meet people globally, meet people who are outside of where we can immediately travel to. Um, media and technology has a way of equalizing some aspects of socioeconomics. So um, you know, it provides access maybe for, you know, provided that there's good service, you know, where a young person lives, it could provide the opportunity to explore and to see, you know, things that they wouldn't be able to ordinarily see. 
you know, I think it's wonderful that the Smithsonian, Colonial, Williamsburg, some of these great places that mm. I think a lot of children who grew up in, you know, from more privileged backgrounds like myself, um, you know, think of as rites of passage, you know, like, you know, um, or experiences that you've had, you know, where I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember going up to D.C. in the fifth grade. Oh, yeah, I remember, you know, taking the you know, tour of the Civil War spots in the eighth grade. Oh, yeah, I remember going to Colonial Williamsburg. And these are, you know, I grew up in Florida. These they were not places that were close to me, mm-hmm. but it seems that these are very ubiquitous experiences that children who grew up kind of middle, you know, to upper middle class kind of, you know, in the U.S., got to experience um, throughout their childhood. But I recognize when talking sometimes to colleagues who didn't grow up with the same level of privilege that these were experiences that they did not have. So I'm super excited that media has allowed, you know, views of some of these same sites of some of these same programs so that young people who can't travel to places like this still have the opportunity to learn and have those experiences. And there are people who do very good, thoughtful work around how to make it feel like you're there. So these are the assets of media. Um, you know, the idea that you can access information at any point in time, day or night is an asset of media. Um, I remember, you know, working on projects and having to go to the library and look up things and, you know, copy pages out of things if you wanted to work on it later and um, to write a paper. And, you know, I think writing a paper is probably a much less painful process for someone who's, you know, in high school than it was for me. But, you know, I think we also have to understand, well, what are some of the liabilities of media? So one of the liabilities of media is um, is the flip side of that 24-7 access, which is problem solving and planning skills. So on one hand, you know, it was great that I had more time to work on things outside of when my branch library was open. I mean, the, the city that I grew up in, the main library, which was maybe 30 minutes away from my house, was open until nine o'clock at night. The branch that was open that was closer to my neighborhood, that one closed at six o'clock. So just thinking about the logistics of being a student, getting out of school at a particular time, getting over to the library, pulling up the information I needed, I mean, it meant that I had to make a lot of copies or check out a lot of books that maybe were not useful because I didn't have time to evaluate their utility and then decide what was important for my paper. I just needed to gather all the information and take it with me. Um, And of course, that then meant that there would be less access for other people who might need that same information. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the idea that multiple people can access information and it's not limited by these factors is wonderful. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, though, I did learn time management skills because just Mm -hmm. realistically, I couldn't start working on my paper that was due on Monday on Friday afternoon because the library wasn't open over the weekend. And so I had to make some plans around that. Um, some of the, you know, kind of, especially in the middle school years, that kind of 12 to 15 age range, you know, that is actually where we're starting to start to develop our forward processing, our frontal lobe, which is our um, planning ahead task management part of our brain, which is the last place part of the brain to um, to develop. It takes about 10 years um, and finishes around 25. Um, That's when that part of the brain is developing. Sometimes technology short circuits that system. Um, And so young people interacting with technology, you know, in an unlimited way all the time, kind of, oh, I can get information, what's the point um, of planning ahead, that's a loss of a valuable skill that's needed in adulthood. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I was just going to say, um, on the topic of that, I suppose, um, I did also want to talk about how this sort of access uh, will change core skills. So like you brought up problem solving and also, I suppose, methods of thinking. Is there any specific sort of way it's going to change it? Do you think it's going to just be processed differently as in we're going to problem solve differently? We're going to time manage differently? Or is it like there was a core loss of this skill? So, you know, I think that ultimately it's that we're going to process it differently. Because at the end of the day, society has also changed in a way to accommodate accommodate this 24-hour cycle of how individuals gain information, work, and have expectations. Now, I think only time will tell us what are the advantages and disadvantages of that and you know, whether or not this will pose a problem for us as a people. Um, we, we know that there are early signs that things like anxiety, quality of sleep, Um, are being greatly impacted by this new way of working, this idea that you're always on because the world is always working as interconnected as global. And so, you know, it may be eight o'clock at night and a very reasonable time to stop working, you know, here on the East Coast, but it could actually, but that could actually be, you know, six o'clock the next day, you know, Mm. in, you know, in Southeast Asia. And so um, already we're seeing some of those liabilities in adults What we don't know, because this group of young people are the first young people who will go into adulthood living in a world like this, is what we don't know is how how did the how did growing up or developing in a world where um, the world was on a twenty four cycle and there wasn't the there weren't these hard boundaries of what is rest, what is family time, what is work. So that will only know, you know, five to 10 years from now, if we we look at things like, you know, sleep quality, depression, anxiety, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Um, We have some indications that, you know, there does seem to have a detrimental effect on those things. But, you know, perhaps society as a whole will swing back in a different direction where we'll say, oh, well, you know, I have to take into account what the time zone is of the person who's providing me with this information. And so, you know, perhaps if I'm collaborating with people who are, you know, five hours ahead and also collaborating with people who are five hours behind me, we'll pick one or two hours that are the sweet spot for everybody to meet. And then each of us will have touch base, things that we're working on in the next 24 hours, and we'll have to plan deadlines based upon everybody's time zone. I don't think that we as a society have gotten quite that sophisticated in our use of globalization, Um, but hopefully we will. Now... The question becomes that if young people who will ultimately be the future leaders in this kind of global world didn't learn forward planning skills because they maybe didn't have to at an earlier point, will they have the foresight to do that? We'll have to see. Um, I think it's an interesting question, but I think the great thing about humans is that we have been incredibly resilient to survive all of these years. So I think we'll come up with some solution. Um, But I do think that, you know, It's important, I think, to teach young people values and values that align with, you know, the cultural mores of each family. And so, you know, I think that boundaries around technology is an important way to teach a life skill, which is boundaries. And so, you know, I think that young people are still going to get that life skill with appropriate media use. For sure. Um, It's at this point that I also want to bring up um, the topic of intersectionalism. Um, And so, of course, we know this topic can be intersectional with various amount of issues, uh, gender, race, etc., whether you're queer or not, um, all that kind of stuff. 
oh, and also I should mention socioeconomic class. Uh, when thinking about this, and I did have a conversation with another colleague um, earlier on, um, just a casual one, of course, and, and we brought up the idea of, unfortunately, the disparity between the rich and the poor um, is becoming larger. And so even though, quote unquote, everybody does have access to internet through libraries, et cetera, um, the truth is how you process uh, things that are given and things that you learn, et cetera, is quite different. Um, do you think that uh, this would play any part in children who grow up? Because um, unfortunately, it's become so, such a large disparity uh, that it's almost hard to see how it's going to progress in later on in society um, and how different areas of people are going to interact, how it's uh, going to uh, work, in, uh, work in the world, work in the uh, industry, et cetera. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that is a wonderful thing to think about and to consider. It is an area that from a research perspective, we are only just now beginning to scratch mm. the surface on. So one of the areas um, when thinking about liabilities of media has been the thought on what the impact of this very particularly social media driven world, mm. um, the impact that that has on self-esteem and then kind of from as an extension of self-esteem, depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so in looking at um, young people, one of the things, so now we're thinking about a slightly older cohort than kind of our 14 and under group that we've been talking about, but really thinking about that middle adolescent going into young adulthood, so 15 to 25, that's the area that the research has been done in, the age groups that the research has been done in. Mm -hmm. um, it has actually been shown that the only um, group, so there was thought that technology use was, um, in terms of mental health, was a U-shaped curve. So what that means is that if you're if you had too little technology or social media interaction, then that was bad for your mental health. And if you had too much, that was also bad for your mental health. But there was a sweet spot kind of in the middle where that was actually a good thing, you know, so you have some connection, but you also have other connections that are in real life. Mm -hmm. It turns out that it's not really a U-curve. It is actually more of a linear kind of positive correlation. However, um, what is interesting is that the only group past the threshold that continues to experience benefit from social media interactions um, or higher levels of social media interaction are white males. Mm. And the thought process of that is that essentially the more that what you're seeing reflects you, then it is a positive thing. If what you're seeing does not reflect you, then it's not a positive thing. And so thinking through, you know, kind of you know, we live in a world that unfortunately tends to center, you know, whiteness, tends to center um, higher socioeconomics, tends to center masculinity, um, tends to center, center heteronormative, um, and tends to center in the Western world um, um, English predominance. And so when, so when the more things that you have, ableism, so forth, the more things that you have that are viewed as being disadvantages or the opposite of what's being centered, then the more that your increased media exposure actually suggests to you um, that you're not keeping up with kind of the standard. And as a mm -hmm. result, that then has a negative impact on mental health. Mm -hmm. So we can only assume or postulate that for people who are even younger than that 16-year-old threshold, 15, 16-year-old threshold, which is where the study, the studies kind of start in terms of thinking about age. Um, because, and I think a lot of that has to do with when you think about the rules around social media, you're not supposed mm. to have an account until you're 13. So <laughs> you aren't supposed to study people who aren't legally supposed to have something. So, you know, we don't have, you know, the data on the younger kids. Mm -hmm. But when you think about, you know, what that probably means when one of the biggest developmental tasks of adolescence 
is identity formation. Mm -hmm. Um, What does, you know, seeing a world that does not reflect you, what does that mean in terms of identity formation? Mm -hmm. And so if we're moving to a world that's supposed to be um, celebrating the differences and the diversity of each of us, um, then we probably, you know, the solution I don't think is, you know, well, you know, limit media for people who are not, you know, cisgendered, heterosexual, white males, you know, from, you know, higher, from higher socioeconomic statuses. I think what the solution is, of course, is to make sure that we're making the media world, the technology world, the artificial intelligence that comes from all of this, et cetera, reflective of, so, of all of the diversity that we see in this world, family structure diversity, um, um, gender, gender diversity, racial diversity, um, relationship diversity and so forth. Um, and so we want to make sure that, you know, what we're presenting in the world um, mimics that. Mm-hmm, sure. Then I think there's the other intersectional issue of access, um, which mm-hmm. um, is a whole entirely different um, system, not just in terms of access to, you know, Wi-Fi, internet, um, broadband, also access in terms of technology. Um, mm-hmm. I thought it was very interesting. A lot of the elite schools as a way to minimize the, um, minimize kind of the socioeconomic gap said, oh, instead of writing an essay, you could then create a virtual essay, a digital essay. Mm-hmm. Um, and they thought that this was going to be a great asset because, you know, they're young people who maybe don't have a personal computer in their home, um, but, they, but everybody pretty much has a smartphone. Mm-hmm. And so they thought, oh, wow, this is going to be a really great thing. And actually the unintended consequence was because every young person has a smart you know, phone. Mm-hmm. Um, people who also would have had access to computers and tablets, et cetera, said, oh, I'm gonna go ahead and take this virtual essay option. But then they had better technology, better editing software, yeah. better lighting, better all of these things to create a really impressive video that you're then giving to an interview committee of people who are less savvy with technology mm-hmm. and are really wowed by this. And all of a sudden now, instead of judging applications based on content, mm-hmm. we're judging applications based on the, um, the amazing attributes of, <laughs> of the <laughs> social media filters and, mm-hmm. um, and the technology that you could buy. Mm-hmm. And essentially it was who presented a better marketing package mm-hmm. and which was not actually the skill we were trying to assess. I mean, that'd be mm-hmm. great if that was what we were, you know, we were looking at, you know, a programming school or an interior design or something like that. Mm-hmm. But this isn't a, this isn't a portfolio type thing. This is admissions for um, college. Yeah. And so it, there, I think, so I think that that's where some of our thoughts, you know, in terms of what are the unintended consequences of things that happen as we try to level the playing field mm-hmm. um, and be creative in that. I think the pandemic of course has laid that bare um, for us as a society but I think it's just something to, important to continue considering. Yeah, for sure. Um, definitely, I think, um, especially prominent in elementary and, and middle school as well now, um, because I think when I was in elementary, et cetera, um, even then, I think the idea of having your own technology was very prominent. Um, but of course, I have a younger brother and looking at it from his perspective, um, technology basically uh, almost expected, like nobody really bothers to ask to, uh, as to whether you have access or not. Um, and I think 
access to technology, so many access as well, but access to technology is being much more assumed that it's accessible than it actually is. And so now even in elementary, it's not like, oh yeah, okay, here are Chromebooks because you guys aren't really going to have computers or tablets. It's like, oh, you know, if you need any special accommodations, you can go ahead and talk to me. And that's fine, of course, but oftentimes from my experience and from uh, those people, uh, people that I know and their experiences as well, um, accommodations or special accommodations, quote unquote, are really just, uh, oh, okay, I understand you don't have it. So here, like, here's like one option that you can take that really isn't actually that helpful at all, but you can take it anyways, and you're gonna have to work your butt off um, in contrast to someone who obviously has has the technology to do so. And it really does become more and more of like a, a, a questionable a questionably concerning thing um, because like you said when you get to college and such um, at that point you know these are things that really affect uh, how your life is going to turn out how your career is going to turn out and that really only um, you know I think pushes the idea of socioeconomic class and um, how much harder it is for, for you to uh, quote-unquote work your way up which is of course the American dream um, and, and an individualistic dream at that um, and so hopefully fingers crossed the education system will recognize that, especially like you said in the past year. But I think there is still a lot to be done because I think people are starting to realize how much of an issue it is, but not entirely because it doesn't only affect your education. It affects your education, it affects um, the things that you can learn outside of school. It affects your social interaction and it affects, um, you know, seeing what you're interested in, what you're not uh, for your career and for your life. And so I think in that regard, definitely something to consider. And I guess, as you have said it before, um, only time will tell how it will turn out. Kudos on that well, point. I thought it was really interesting when you mentioned access. You know, it's funny. So what exactly is access? So it's assumed mm. that everybody has access. Yes. And I think that one of the things the pandemic taught us is that we all have different definitions of access. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I remember I was having this conversation with my mom and, you know, just thinking about, you know, I was like, gosh, I have so many patients who are struggling with, you know, um, the pandemic and, you know, this switch to virtual learning, like right at the beginning of the pandemic. And my mom said to me, she said, well, I was, I saw this thing, you know, on the news where, you know, they're providing, you know, free broadband and, you know, just other things like that. She's like, have you shared that with your patients? And I said to her, oh yeah. I mean, and I said a lot of the school districts also provided that temporary routers and things like that. I said, but here's the problem. I said, it's not just an issue of the internet access, you know, mm. you, oh, now you have the internet. Everybody has the internet. I said, <laughs> it's more so the technology and the devices. Mm. So I said, sure, lots of people have the internet, but they have it on a phone. Mm. You can't submit assignments on a phone. Yeah. Like you can submit assignments. You can submit something that you did upload on a computer, uploaded to a Google doc from a phone. So that's really convenient, but it assumes a lot of things. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think that one of the things we have to think about is, you know, well, how many devices does each child have or does the household have that are for shared use? So, you know, I had patients who, you know, yes, the child had access to a laptop at home. It was mom or dad's work laptop. Mm. So now with the move of virtual school and also remote work equals so that one laptop is not sufficient any longer because initially mom or dad used the laptop at work, you know, in the nine to five, the laptop came home and the child could use the laptop between six and 10. Mm-hmm. And so that one device that the family didn't essentially have to purchase su- served everyone in the family. 
Now we have to think about each person having a dual device. Um, you know, is the internet that you have, is the router or the, you know, or the broadband, is it high enough to support, you know, 16 devices running on it? So, you know, um, maybe it's not, and maybe not being used in that way. Streaming takes up more, you know, broadband space than, you know, recreational use, maybe just to kind of quickly check something. Um, and so, you know, these were all things that families that already had technology in a pretty abundant way hadn't really considered because they didn't have technology where four people, six people, three people were all using all of their technology at maximum capacity at the same time. Um, and so these were all factors that, as we said, we quote unquote caught up everybody or provided them with free access that were not taken into account. And then, of course, the bigger conversation that's not, of course, being had is in a post-pandemic world, whatever that means, um, what, what will return and what will not return? Um, so, you know, what will the expectations be around, well, we did this for, you know, the last 18 months, because the longer that this kind of pandemic world drags on, the more that this becomes the new normal. And... Um, but are we are already seeing that a lot of the provisions, a lot of the social, you know, subsidies or social justice or equalizing type of measures um, are being removed. And so it's really turned into, I think, what we're seeing in, you know, a post-pandemic world and people who are far smarter than me are kind of reporting is that we're seeing a widening of that socioeconomic gap instead of a shrinking of the socioeconomic gap. Mm -hmm. I think also um, something to bring up too is with, I, I think with how large of an impact the internet has gotten is also something of great importance. Of course, technology is great. Access to globalization is great, but time has become currency and so how fast your technology can run even I think and I'm very privileged with what I have of course I'm very lucky to be living the life I am um, but from what I've noticed uh, from my scope uh, view etc is that even within such a privileged community and I will say I do live in one um, but even even within here uh, people with different levels of tech so if it's high tech it's the newest thing on the on the market etc or if it's something that's like even i i hate to say this but like two years old is something like that uh even that affects how they're able to do the work because now their mac is running like super slow and they can't get anything done and of course this is this is um hugely beneficial to tech companies they're doing this on purpose um so that they can push up new things and uh earn more money obviously uh but for us who use the tech it's not so great and I think even with this aspect to consider, it's um, it really brings you to a very new understanding of this issue because I don't think people ever really consider how large of an impact, and I've said this before, but how large of an impact this has on issues because when, um, and obviously I'm a senior, I'm working towards university, et cetera, and there's just so much you have to do because again, now standards are super high. You have like, you have to have five extracurriculars, you know, like a 95% uh, GPA, whatever, or that's not GPA, like a 4.0 GPA and a 95% uh, average, et cetera, all these kind of things. And you do everything online. And so the sort of technology and, uh, you know, whether it runs well, whether it doesn't run well, whether you have access to certain softwares or not, those are also things to consider. And, and it's much larger of a 
uh, issue than I think we are considering is my whole point anyways. Um, with that being said, of course, um, something else I did want to talk about was how this sort of access to internet for uh, the younger generations has affected social skills. And also, um, in, in that case, what are social skills? Is the definition changing rapidly? Uh, is it, you know, somewhat the same, etc.? Uh, any thoughts on that? So, you know, I think that I think I like, you know, how you ask the question, well, what are social skills? Mm -hmm. So what, you know, what are some of the tangible ways that we've seen, you know, kind of this very media heavy culture impact society is that society has become less formal. Um, and that is, you know, something that in general is happening, you know, titles and honorifics have gone down in terms of use. Um, but also, you know, people's definitions of friends has mm. also changed, you know, so I think that, you know, this idea that, you know, people you're connected to on social media are your friends um, is also extended into real life. And that has some scary implications. So, you know, the pediatrician part of my brain finds it scary that someone who is young can friend someone who is, you know, very well established as an adult. You know, I mean, I'm not mm -hmm. talking about kind of the 14 year old friending the 18 year old. I'm talking about, you know, the 14 year old friending a 40 year old. Now, we would hope that on some level, the 40-year-old would have the insight to be like, I should not be friends with a 14-year-old on social media or in real life. Um, however, um, you know, as we get back to, well, what are the adult expectations that we have of young people? Young people engage with information in a way that in some ways is more sophisticated and more refined than some 40-year-olds do. Mm -hmm. um, and so... I agree, like what's a social norm is being kind of redefined. And I think that as social media, you know, is moving from its original use, which was just a way for people to make more friends, you know, in a global space to really being a way that we now also make professional contacts or, mm -hmm. or maybe semi-professional contacts in terms of people, you know, I have interest in things that is somewhat intellectual, but at the same time is not my true profession. Um, you know, what does that mean? So I think that really we now need to think through what are friends. So social media that's being used purely for a social context, like it was initially thought of, but then what are learning communities? And maybe there needs to be different privacy and different um, rules around things that are learning community spaces versus social spaces. But right now, that's not where the technology is. And so there is a danger there in terms of kind of this informality that's coming to, to society or really what I like to call a lack of boundaries. So, you know, I, you know, pretty much always had a very hard, fast rule that, for instance, I, you know, and aligned with kind of, you know, medical ethics standards that I don't friend, you know, patients and their families that I'm actively taking care of. Mm -hmm. um, I don't friend, you know, patients ever, you know, because my patients are minors. <laughs> um, and then, and then thinking through, you know, and then I also, you know, did not friend people who I was training mm -hmm. um, because then that's kind of a professor student relationship. But, you know, as now we have, a hospital social media account or residency program social media account. Well, now those lines are blurred. So, you know, so I do have some, you know, trainees that I'm friends with because, you know, we work on various committees together. We're sharing information around things that relate to work mm -hmm. and my not being their friend is problematic. But at the same time, 
you know, they and I both have boundaries around what we'd like each other to see of our non-work lives. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I had, you know, I had a resident who came to me and was very, I guess, frustrated because a colleague shared something that was on their social media with another attending. Mm-hmm. And their question to me was kind of how to address that because they were just kind of like, uh, you know, I, I didn't feel comfortable with that attending seeing that because, and really for them, it was an age boundary, you know, like mm-hmm. they recognized that that attending that saw that um, was an attending who was in an age space that could be their parent. And it was content that it wasn't bad content. They were fine with it being out there on social media, but at the same time, it just wasn't something that they would share with their parent. And therefore they didn't want it shared with an attending who was like their parent, whereas they didn't object to maybe it being shared with someone like me or another attending that they mentioned also saw it, who was a little bit younger and closer to them in age. And so I think it's the difference between thinking about near peer versus, you know, kind of older peer. And I think that those are spaces that already people struggled with navigating in the, in the real world workplace. Um, so, I mean, I remember the first job that I had, you know, where I was in attending and, you know, colleagues were like, yeah, just call me, you know, Bob, you know what I mean? And for me raised, you know, my, my heritage is West Indian. So being raised in, you know, a Jamaican household where, you know, everybody is Mr. or Mrs. Auntie or whatever, you know, or uncle um, to just call someone who is my, you know, parent's age or my parent's friend's age, you know, by their first name was daunting for me. And even something that's still professionally, I struggle with at times, you know, several years out of, you know, my first job. And the realization that, you know, those are boundaries that, and those are, and like, for me, that's a, that's a struggle out of a, like a new and established boundary. I think that that becomes even more confusing in a system where boundaries are less clear, you know, um, and I think social media in a lot of ways blurs that boundary because, you know, you aren't even sure when you look at someone's profile that they really are who they say they are. So even if you saw someone, you said, oh, you know, well, this seems okay. They, you know, they seem like they're a college kid, you know what I mean? And I'm a teenager. So that's okay. We're near peers. Mm-hmm. And, but actually the person who's out there, you know, acting as if they're a college student influencer <laughs> could actually be, you know, 50. And mm-hmm. so, and so I think that those are all things that are challenging. I think that those are things that we as a society are going to have to work out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think how we teach kids to interact with social media is going to have to become much more um, sophisticated. I think that the personalized family media use plan does start to address that. So it starts to kind of actually, you know, have you as a family work out some very concrete boundaries around social media. So, you know, thinking about safety. So friending people, you know, maybe who you only know in real life, you know, not providing details um, of location until you've met someone in person um, and you know who they are. but also thinking through, um, to, you know, it starts to address things like hate speech mm-hmm. on social media, um, you know, because cyberbullying, you know, we have to think about being, you know, young people being cyberbullied, but we mm-hmm. also think of young people as perpetrating cyberbullying, um, both with peers, but then also with the larger, you know, the larger society. I mean, mm-hmm. part of why cancel culture exists 
is because it's much easier to say mean things and vitriolic things to someone you don't actually know than it is to say that to someone who you know and will see tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, I think these are things that quite frankly, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics needs to figure out, but also, you know, us as a larger society need to figure (laughs) out. Um, And then in turn, try to provide some framework or guidance to, um, to young people. And I think what's hard for parents um, and you know for the adults in general is that a lot of times we're trying to provide boundaries and guidance around something that we ourselves don't understand well mm. um, and don't have as much experience with. So in a lot of ways, the young person is the expert. And so the advice that I offer to parents, you know, and to patients in that context is um, it's okay for the young person to be the expert. Um, what you do is you allow the young person to give you the factual data. And then as an adult, you process that with your more mature processing that comes from your frontal lobe. And then you can have a conversation with your young person around. So what I'm understanding you're saying is that it can do this, this, or this, show me what that is. Show me what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is where this makes me a little nervous. Mm -hmm. Can we agree on this kind of meet in the middle space? Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously the answer is not going to be, you're just not going to use that. Um, you know, you can say that as an adult, it won't be effective. Um, <laughs> the, teenagers, the teenagers are much more smart and savvy around technology than we are. So, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you know, so, um, they'll find a way to use it and that would be a challenge. But I think that there are ways that there can be conversations to really kind of, well, this is what I'm worried about. And I think that whenever you can have a conversation with an adolescent around what you're worried about. Mm-hmm. Um, then that actually teaches them the problem-solving skill. Mm-hmm. So we're worried that technology erases problem-solving skills, um, but I can teach you the problem-solving skill. I know that's a very long answer too. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you so much. It was really great. I'm listening to that for sure. Um, thank you so much for your expertise, of course, on, on this topic. And that was really great to listen to. Um, unfortunately, of course, we have reached the end of our episode. So for our listeners, uh, where can they reach you? Um, so I guess the best way to meet me is, um, if you're on social media, (laughs) um, at the knobs LLC. Mm -hmm. All right. Wonderful. And with that, thank you all very, very much for listening and I will see you next time. All right. Have a good one. Mm -hmm.